Thank you very much. You may be seated. Turn to the person next to you and said, you look wonderful today. Husbands, if you said something to your wife on the way out, this is a good time to apologize if you didn't like what you saw. I, I know it well. I, I travel well with my wife and we have the conversations as we leave home. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and tell them, to tell them Mark is a bit overdressed today. <laughs> I'm so delighted to be here at the beginning of Christian Aid Week to be with you and thank you Pastor Joseph and your leadership for giving me the opportunity to be here. I'm going to share with you um, a little bit about the priority of global mission, but first of all, I'm going to divide my time in two and talk a little bit about Christian Aid and the work of Christian Aid, and then I'll share some thoughts from the book of Philippians. Over this weekend, the nation has been observing two spectacular things. One, we had the general election, and... Um, God has given us the, the government for the next five years who will rule over us, so there's a lot of opportunity for prayer and fasting, and that um, the right ministers of the various departments would be appointed and everything else will go well. But also, there is VE Day, um, the, celebration of the, the celebration of the end of the Second World War when the Germans surrendered. But that day also coincides with a very important day for us at Christian Aid. Because it was at that point that leaders of the churches in Britain and Ireland decided rather than just join in a victorious celebration, we ought to counsel, take counsel amongst ourselves and ask the question, what should we do to, to mitigate or to deal with the needs and the responsibilities that we have towards all those who have been dispossessed, the refugees and everybody who had lost everything during the war. What should we as a church, how can we, we be Christ in this situation? And so Christian Aid was formed to coincide with VE Day victory in Europe. And so it wouldn't surprise you that it's all today also marks our 70th anniversary as an organization. And as an organization today, Christian Aid works in more than 52 countries across the world. And part of what we seek to do as an organization is to bring an end to the challenges of poverty. And we believe that as an organization and as the body of Christ, there is something that God demands of us and that God expects from us. In the early days when Christian Aid was first established, it was established as the Organization for Reconstruction and Development. And over the years, in 1964, when Europe had actually settled down a little bit, Christian Aid started to 
look to the continents where there were newly independent states which are part of the Commonwealth today, but also in the, in the countries where they were fighting for independence from the colonial masters. And the same tragedies, lack of food, people being displaced, that was happening within Europe was also happening in countries that were fighting for independence and those that were newly independent. And in those countries, Christian Aid reviewed its priorities and decided in 1964 that it would start working overseas. And to this day, it's also, so today coincides with 50 years also of us working and now exclusively internationally. All of the major movements that took place around in terms of the development of voluntary service overseas, the, the establishment of the Disaster and Emergency Committee, fair trade, and all the major things to do with international development, Christian Aid has been at the heart of the movement and that conversation and has been its founder and founder members. And so we exist really to expose the scandal of poverty and to root it out wherever it's found and to challenge the systems and structures that keep people poor. We work where the need is greatest by providing three things, long-term support, humanitarian assistance, and advocacy. And by that I mean we go to places where the poor of the poor live, people who haven't been discovered or have been neglected and forgotten, and work towards restoring the image and likeness of God in their circumstances. It wouldn't be lost on you that um, ever so often there is a national, not outcry as such, but a national conscious awareness about something that is happening in the world. A few weeks ago it was the people who were coming across from Libya to Italy. There was Nepal, there's the situations in Iraq, and although the media has moved off from some of those conversations, they're still there. And as long as they're there, the work of Christian Aid and other organizations are there, and that's what we mean by long-term support. But humanitarian assistance deals with crisis and emergencies. But increasingly, there's the challenge of advocacy speaking for those who have no voice and speaking to those who are in the truth to power, those who are in positions of power. And that is an important part of our work or else we just become nurse aides. So every time we see a wound, we go and patch it up without finding out what is the source of the problem? Why is it being caused? How do we bring an end to it? And how do we encourage people to live lives that are resilient to these circumstances and situations. And so we have 
a challenge about the scandal of poverty. Today, millions of people are displaced because of conflict. In Syria alone, there are seven million people in Syria alone. There is South Sudan, the newest nation in the world. In conflict, people are being displaced. There's the internal displacement in Iraq because of ISIS. And there are many other countries, even on the continent of Africa, where people are constantly being displaced, either because of conflict or even because of economic development, where land and possessions are being taken and people don't know that they're being displaced or until the bulldozers turn up at their doors. And then their lives, whatever normality they have, is transformed. Millions of people therefore live in fear and they're vulnerable to attacks, whether it's through Boko Haram, Islamic states, or other insurgencies. But more significant, one of the recent developments that is significant is where sex is used as a weapon of war so that communities are devastated because it's those who perpetrate the crimes, they're doing it so that they would never be forgotten and so that the communities would never be able to pull themselves back together again. Tonight, nearly a billion people will go hungry. And for us, that's a scandal. There's 2.6 billion people who lack basic sanitation and 11 million people will die because of preventable disease this year. I don't need to tell you about the devastation that the Ebola crisis has caused. I know you're a church that works very closely with um, other churches in Sierra Leone. We praise God that this week Liberia has been declared Ebola-free. And only, and only nine cases in both Guinea and Sierra Leone came to, um, came to light in the last week or so, which is a huge improvement. But there are going to be ongoing challenges in those countries because their infrastructure has been destroyed. Some people who survive the crisis and survive Ebola are in a worse state than they were before. They've lost everything. So if you suffer from Ebola and you got taken away for treatment, before you come back, your house is even burned down because you have to get rid of the virus or everything inside of it is disinfectant to the point in which it's not usable. So those people don't, they don't have any identification, no birth certificate, no passport, no bank accounts, nothing that identifies them as a human being. And compounded with that, the level of suspicion within communities prevent them from coming back. Their employers don't want them to come around because they're seen as a threat to life. And so it takes a great deal to put those lives back together again, and it will take years and years to build it, to build back both the infrastructure and the lives that they had. I had a couple of slides about, if you fast forward to the Sierra Leone slide, just to show you 
um, the marketplace. There's a marketplace. I can. That's what it used to be, pre-Ebola. If you go to the next few slides, just to show, I don't know if you can see them. That's what the. That's what it looks like when people cannot assemble, or come or or go shopping or whatever it is. Just overgrown for the last year and a half or so, just over a year or so. This is a devastation. I, you, you can't see it very well, but it's. Most places are just desolate. Children are now allowed to go back to school, but their parents don't have any employment and can't pay their fees. So the challenge will go on and on and on, and I encourage you to continue to support those that um, you're working with at the moment and those who are in need in that case, in that sense. We work in four continents. We work in Africa, Asia, the Middle East and Latin America and the Caribbean. And we seek to make sure that as we do those, the, that work, one of the things that Christian Aid has got a unique way of working. We don't hire staff in the UK and send them overseas as Noels and to show everybody what to do. We work in part with partners locally and we resource them to do the job that needs to be done. And this, in this, in this context that we have Christian Aid Week. And I'll tell you why Christian Aid Week is important. It's important because it's the largest act of Christian witness and solidarity in the UK where more than 10,000 churches today will be doing something fantastic for Christian Aid this week. There'll be more than 100,000 individuals doing something to raise money for the work that Christian Aid is doing around the world. And this year, we're focusing specifically on Ethiopia as an example of some of the work that we're doing. Yeah, you can move forward on that one. If you go to the slide that says... Okay, let's show, let me show you a sample of some of the work we do. If you go to the next slide, that'll be helpful. Thank you very much. You're doing a great job. Not yet? That's the back? How we got that far? Not the end. Try, try slide. Just pop up a little bit for me. Okay, I think my slide have gone. I needed to show you a slide. Okay, we'll come back to that later on. Well, let's go to scripture while we sort out that, and I'll come back and show you a little bit more about Christian aid in, in the end. Let's turn our Bibles to... Let's turn our Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to talk about the priority of global mission. Actually, let me start with Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, verses 14 to 18. We all know this scripture very well. In your, in your, in your Bibles, it might say, the Great Commission. 
But I just want to point out a couple of things there before we go ahead to that scripture. I want to start by making a bold statement that says, it is understandable but not acceptable that Christians in the church today struggle, struggle with or contend with and challenge the very principle that they need to be involved in mission. Can I say that again? It is understandable but not acceptable that Christians in the church today struggle with or contend with and challenge the very principle as to why there is a need for mission. It's understandable only because the disciples who lived and worked and traveled with Jesus had the same challenge. Hello? And so in Mark chapter 16, from verses 14, it says, Later Jesus appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he, was ridden, as after he had ridden, risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs shall follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Whenever we hear about the Great Commission, we get the impression that Jesus was having a private conversation, and part of that conversation, he says to the, to the disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel, isn't it? But I want us to read that again. And think about it as you reading it yourself. Think about the contradiction that if I am angry with Pastor Joseph, and I come to Pastor Joseph and says, how come you don't do what I ask you to do? And then I'll be, go and do it. The two don't work together like that. You understand what I'm trying to say? Jesus was angry with the disciples because they did not understand they did not accept and they could not respond to all the things that he had taught them, all the things that there was being unfolded before them, and now they locked themselves in this room. If you read Matthew's Gospel and if you read it in, in John, you'll see that they had locked themselves in a room because they were fearful that the soldiers would come and kill them because the rumor was the disciples stole the body of Jesus. And here they were, and Jesus appeared in the midst of them. Nobody opened the door for him. He just came right in their midst. And the thing about it is, Jesus doesn't need an invitation to invade your space. 
He turns up when he chooses and however he chooses. And so Jesus turned up in their space and still they couldn't believe that he was the Messiah. And he got angry as he did on a number of other occasions. So when he said, he rebuked them for unbelief and hardness of heart in verses 14. So when he said, go into all the world, he wasn't just saying go into the, all the world. He was saying, get out. Get out of here. Why are you locking yourself inside, being fearful? Have you not heard? Have you not seen? What more do I need to persuade you that you should go? Get out of here. Hello? I'm not going to be here. I'm gone. Get out and do what I ask you to do. Now, I'm tempted to tell you the same. Get out of here. Go and do what God has asked you to do. Get out of here. Get lost in what God is saying you must do. And you would have thought that the disciples would be obedient. But when you read John chapter 16, chapter 21, verses 1 to 3, you'll find that half of them went fishing. I don't know if it's, if it's of any significance that half went fishing. And I don't know what the other half went to do. But he named them. John took the time to name those who went fishing. I just thought that's interesting. And so... I'm coming to the realization that for many Christians, mission is an event rather than a lifestyle. It is something that we opt in and opt out of. We attend or we don't attend. And so I'm coming around to think that mission, the word mission, is bad for the church. And maybe... We need to start thinking about the ministry of caring. For God so loved the world, John 3.16 says, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He loved. And the whole concept, I mean, we have no right to talk about mission unless we're talking about loving people. Mission is not what it does for us and our kudos. It's about how we dispense the love of God to those who need it. Hello? You can talk to me, I wouldn't get nervous. In Philippians chapter 4, in Philippians chapter 4, 
I thought this is an interesting place to draw some attention to because this was a church that was planted by the Apostle Paul and this was a church that he said was his joy and his crown. And maybe there is something within this church that we can learn from if we're going to think about how we prioritize the issue of caring. Notice I said caring, not mission. The issue of caring. And in verses 4, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, and long for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Whenever a scripture starts with therefore, it means that what come, came before it is of significance to the relevance of what is going to be discussed. So you can't move ahead in chapter 4 without understanding what happened in chapter 3. Hello? Or at least just what happened just before that. The Apostle Paul was proud of the Corinthian church. He, Philippian church, thank you very much. I was just checking to see if you're listening. Well done. And he wanted them to be strong. And for him, he, he used the words joy and crown. In our day today, we use pride and joy means the same thing. Is that all right? It's my pride and joy. When something is your pride and joy, you really cuckoo hoops about it, really, really excited about it. However, the Apostle Paul felt that there was a problem. This church was doing fantastic. This was the church he was most proud of. And yet he had a problem. And the problem was that they were at risk of adopting a faith or a lifestyle that would undermine the essence of the cross of Jesus Christ or the efficacy of the cross, which means the effectiveness of the cross would be undermined. And so if we go to chapter, chapter 3 and verses 17, he points us to something that we ought to have as foundations before we consider going. The first things he points us to is the type of role models we should have. Hello? And here's what he says. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk. So, in other words, follow my example and follow the example of everybody else who follows me. Isn't that fantastic if you can say that to somebody? Do what I'm doing and everybody who do, do what I do, you can follow them. Elsewhere he says, follow me as I follow Christ. And the reason why he wanted to put out this godly example was he had full confidence in the salvation that came through Jesus Christ. And knowing that salvation and spirituality cannot be earned, 
by following the demands of anybody upon your life or merely conforming to an external show of faith. Ouch. There is nothing that you can add to you that Jesus hasn't already done. You can't be better saved. Or you can't better your salvation. When Jesus says, it is finished, it is finished, and we need to come to terms with that. We cannot perform a work greater than the Holy Spirit, who has called us and drawn us to himself. It just can't do it. The best work has already been done. But if he points us to two models of how we should live, two role models, he's pointing us to one that has a godly example and those that are enemies of the cross. And there's always going to be people who are going to judge your spirituality. There's always going to be somebody who is going to say, you're not good enough or you need to pay a different price. Well, which price is greater than the price that Jesus has already paid? It is finished. The second thing he points us to is two forms of citizenship. There's a heavenly citizenship and there's an earthly citizenship. And he wanted to remind them that their citizenship is in heaven. And unless we have that perspective, we could really get disillusioned about all the things that happen in the world in which we live. But recognizing that our citizenship is in heaven gives us the opportunity to understand both the responsibility and the opportunity that comes with having Jesus as Savior and Lord. We know what citizenship means because only last Thursday we exercised one of the responsibilities of citizenship, or I hope we do, we did. Our heavenly citizenship, however, is unshakable, it's unmovable, it's, un it's unalter unalterable, and unchangeable. Our citizenship here allows us to elect and to select those who will rule over us. But scripture tells us that the kingdom of God has been established from the foundations of the earth. And therefore, it is not up for negotiations. It's permanent and it's fixed. But we're not living in a democracy in our heavenly citizenship, nor are we living in a dictatorship. We are sons and daughters. Our daddy owns the place. We are heirs and joint heirs with Jesus. And therefore, we ought to live as if that is the case. And those who have mainly earthly citizenship, which is the contrast, are depicted as making their God, the things that they can consume. 
Their God is their belly. He said. And their minds are on earthly things. In other words, they're interested in their own prosperity. Even if it's at the expense of everybody else. And it's a challenge to us. And I, I always get delighted when I see children and young people as part of church. But parents, if we think that there is a heavenly citizenship, we must conclude that we cannot put all our investments on earth. Some of that investment has to go in our inheritance, which is our children. And if we've got to work six and five and four jobs to make ends meet, at the expense, or let me pull that back so it doesn't seem as though I'm speaking to one category of people. Let's talk to those who have to work all the hours that God has created so to remain successful at the expense of our children, where they are left to find love and appreciation and acceptance on the streets of London, in gangs, in whatever it is. That is a poor investment. Hello, somebody? And then the third thing he says as our foundation would be, we need to look at our view of the future. This is not it. There is a future that we will have that comes in Christ, with Christ. There will be an opportunity for a new future when our earthly bodies will be transformed into heavenly bodies. When Jesus will subdue and triumph over everything. And when there will be ultimate transformation both of ourselves and the world in which we live. And we cannot afford to forget that Jesus is coming again. I think we're only really able and capable of serving God well when we understand the need for transformation which comes by understanding that we must follow godly examples, that we, where our true citizenship lies and where the difference that we will be transformed when Christ comes. Let me just go to Verses 10. All right, let, let, let me just quickly speak to verses 2. Here is a tricky one. Again, the Apostle Paul is talking to the church about two women. Many of the Bible scholars you will appreciate were men, so they saw things through a single lens. So he said, I implore Iodia, and I imp implore Sintiki, or Sintish, whichever version you, you, you want, to be of the same mind. And I urge you also, true companions, help these women who labor with me in the gospel. Now, many people interpret that to mean, here are two women who are fighting with each other, and they need help to resolve their problem. I want to suggest to you what the Apostle Paul is saying, and I come back to the ministry of caring. 
listen, these two women are working just as I am in the task of mission, and you have faithfully supported me. Why would you leave them unsupported? Help them because they labor with me. Or they labor just like me. And then he goes on to verses 10, and he talks about, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you, you sure did care, but you lacked opportunity. Without opportunity to care, we can't. Whatever gifts and abilities you have, sometimes I was thinking, if I am a mechanic living in a desert where there are no vehicles, there's not even a bicycle. It's just a horse and a cart. What use is my, even if I study a doctorate in mechanical engineer, engineering, what use is it if I cannot exercise the gifts and the talents and the knowledge I have. I don't want you to misunderstand me, but let me put this, let me put this out there to you. This week in the news it says that Michael Schumacher's family is beginning to sell off his airplane, his houses, and all the rest of that. For those of you, I assume everybody knows Michael Schumacher, racing car driver, got in an accident, is now paralyzed. And the family is saying, we have concluded that he would never be able to use those facilities again. And therefore, it's no longer worth having it. I wonder what you've concluded about what God had deposited in you concerning caring for others. And the Apostle Paul continues that this church was not only generous, they also had now had opportunity. And it boils down to this. He said, I have learned, I've got, I don't want anything else from you, I've got enough. I've learned now, in times of plenty and in times of little, to be content. But I want to you to do it because I want your account to be credited. Turn to the person next to you and say, this is where he's going. There is an account that we ought to be building up our credits. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, do not build up your treasure on earth where moth and other things eat it up and where the rust decay it. Build up your treasures in heaven. Well, how do we do that? We build up our treasures in heaven because when we take care of the things that are important to Jesus, and nothing else, if you look at Jesus, I can go through chapter and verse to say nothing was more important to Jesus than those who were on the margins of society and those who were in need of his intervention. Hello? Ah, uh, come on, somebody didn't hear me. Nothing was more important to Jesus than those who were on the margins of society and those who needed his intervention. 
Amen? And in our world today, there is no lack of opportunity. There is no lack of opportunity for us to care. Just if you don't believe me, just flick on the television, go to the news channels, and you will see. But if you really want the to know what the opportunity is, look at Christian Aid's website, look at Oxfam, look at Tearfund, look at the agencies where the news, it hasn't made the news yet. Or it will never make the news where the editors sit down and decide whether you should know it or not. It's the reality in which we work. And ultimately, ultimately, we all come back to Matthew chapter 23 and verses 31. Jesus said, when the Son of Man come, I'm going to separate the sheep and the goat. And I will say to those on my right, I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. And those on my left, I said, depart from me. Because you didn't do those things. And they say, when did I do it? He said, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Now, I want to push it a little bit. How does Jesus know that? How does he know who? Who was doing it? He's keeping a record. That's your is it experience you go for a credit check? We need to credit check with Jesus. He has, a, the Apostle Paul says, he wants to credit our account. And let me say to you, there is never a time when we do something for Jesus that Jesus would left, leave us unprotected or unsupported in our own circumstance. Hear what the Apostle Paul says in verses 19. And only read it from the context of those who have been generous. He said, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Hello? This is not to the stingy. This is not for those who oppose the cross. This is the context in which he, lay, he is speaking. I will supply all your needs according to the riches in glory. You will not lack when you care. And when you lack, it might be difficult to care but God's word is continually and forever true. Stand to your feet and let's pray.